right, good morning, everybody. So Kiara had this mic perfectly set for me, and then Dondre moved it way up, so. Hey, uh, it's great to see you guys uh, this morning. So I just want you all to know the last words I said to Dondre before he came up here were keep it quick. <laughs> Bless his heart, right? When I think of Dondre, I think of what the Apostle Paul said when he says, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. So appreciate, uh, appreciate that brother's heart for sure. So anyway, so speaking of Don Jay, kids, you guys are dismissed. Youth group, you're headed out with Don Jay to help uh, put the feast together. Wasn't it great to have the youth team lead us in worship this morning? Appreciate them for sure. Pray for us because one problem with our youth worship team is that some of the youth aren't so youthy anymore and are headed off to college at the end of this month. So we need to pray for more youths to come uh, up through the ranks and, uh, and lead us in worship. So um, what else was I supposed to mention this morning? I, I know there's something that I was supposed to talk about, and I don't know what it is. So, you know, turn to Mark chapter 10. I do know that. I know we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning. I know it's a great text today. It's a short text, but it's a great text. Um, so turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we have them that you can borrow. So just raise your hand and we'll get a Bible put into your hands, and you can use that for today. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love you to take this one home with you as our gift to you, and most importantly, that you just read it and you get to know the, uh, the author of it. So let's pray and just uh, thank the Lord for his blessings and just ask for his continued ministry to us this morning as we go uh, to the Word together. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for this place that you have provided, Lord, and this time that you have set aside for us to come together each week, Lord, as a church family, uh, as believers, Lord, as sons and daughters of yours, Father, and just to worship you and to learn about you, Lord, to minister to one another as we minister unto you. So, Lord, we do pray. Uh, we thank you for the time that we've already had, Lord, and we pray for the continued ministry of your spirit now as we go to your word. Lord, we pray that the, the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest today, Lord, that you indeed would be our teacher, Lord, and that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church today, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So, amen. All right, so Mark chapter 10, and we're jumping back in to our study through the gospel according to Mark. Didn't Pastor Jeff give us a great word last week? I was so encouraged and, uh, and refreshed by that. But this morning, back to the book of Mark as he chronicles the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we remember when we last left Jesus, now a couple weeks back, we left him at this moment just months away from the cross where he would soon, very soon, give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And he's journeying now, his final journey toward Jerusalem from up there in the Galilee. And we saw that he did this sort of a strange thing. It looked like he sort of went east to go south, but he went around Samaria, as actually all good Jews would have done. Uh, and he ended up there through the region of what's called Perea right, and on his way toward Judea. And it was in Perea where we watched together last time that he was confronted by our old friends who? The fault-finding Pharisees, right? These religious leaders who had come down from Jerusalem and were continually trying to trip up Jesus and to entrap Jesus. And this time they had this divisively designed question about Divorce. Remember, they asked him that it was the is it lawful trap. And we saw, as Jesus always does, that he answered with wisdom and he answered with grace. And he changed the discussion, remember, from one about divorce to one instead that was focused on marriage and really what marriage was always intended to be from the beginning all the way back in the garden as it was conceived in the heart of heaven. And he confounded his accusers and unfortunately also confounded were his disciples, right? As they're continuing just to grapple with and to really try to understand what this coming kingdom is actually all about. And this morning, as we continue on, 
uh, we see another important example in, a, in what I said was a short but a very important passage where Jesus really outlines for us a, a, an important kingdom principle about true kingdom kids. But I will say this, it's not just in the way that you think that it is. Because I think that there's much more here than meets the eye, which I think that we're going to see as we get into the passage. You guys with me? You get that? We're going to see much more than meets the eye. You guys with me, right? Okay, I know it's early yet. Okay, so let's jump in. No sooner had the Pharisees moved off the scene, right, at least for now, but now we're going to get to another group of people, but they were actually earnestly trying to get to Jesus. It says in verse 13 of Mark chapter 10, it says, then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. Now, it was a common practice in the ancient world when you had a famous rabbi that people respected for knowing God and respected because of the relationship that he had with God. And the desire for a parent would have been to bring their children to this kind of a rabbi so that the rabbi would then pray for a blessing upon their children. And so when we had just left off, remember there was this multitude that we had seen just before this. They had gathered and they had actually witnessed this embarrassing confrontation between the religious leaders and Rabbi Jesus. Right? Rabbi Jesus, this radical young rabbi of this incredible popularity now, not only all throughout Israel, right, from north to south to east to west, but even far beyond the borders of Israel. Jesus was turning the religious establishment upside down with his message and his teachings of this new kingdom that would come. And of course, of the miracles and the healings that went with it and his heart of really of care and of concern for the common people. And so we should not be surprised at all that here these parents would want to bring their children to him. Some of us, Luke tells us in his account, some of them would have been babes in arms and others would have been, you know, young children who were even able to walk. And here they are, we see them first just seeking a blessing from Jesus. And of course, it's, you know, interesting that as these parents bring their children here to Jesus for that blessing, you know, they are getting far more than simply a rabbi, aren't they? They're getting far more than even a great rabbi or even the greatest rabbi. Little did they know that they were about to get a blessing for their children from nothing less than the God of heaven himself, right? Come to earth in human flesh. And so, you know, in this particular passage of scripture, it's a very familiar one. And we envision this wonderful picture, right? Jesus standing there, surrounded now by these children who are coming to him to be blessed by him. And it really paints one of what is the most beloved pictures of Jesus, I think, that we really find in all of the Bible. And yet, what we're going to see next is that not everyone, at least here at first, not everyone saw the, the same moment in this beautiful way. Look again at verse 13. It says, They brought these little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Now, you know, this is like a facepalm moment again, right? But before we get all down on the disciples, again, we have to say this. I, I don't think that these guys are mean men. But what they are, especially as we see here, they are simply being overprotective men, right? We know for sure at this point that the disciples didn't quite know everything that was going on with Jesus. They didn't yet fully understand about the cross. They didn't understand, as we've said, the true mission of the Messiah. But what they did at least understand was that there was some sort of a great tragedy that lay directly ahead for Jesus and possibly for them. No doubt they could probably sense sort of this increasing burden that Jesus seemed to be carrying, you know, with each step closer to Jerusalem as the cross loomed on the horizon. And so they probably assumed at this point that they were just doing Jesus a favor, 
by trying to just keep these kids away. After all, he has certainly got more important things on his mind. And especially considering, as we saw a few weeks back, that remember, children back then in that culture were not looked at the way that we look at children today in our culture. Right? Children were not exalted the way that we exalt them as the most important. And in fact, children were seen as the least Right, the least important in terms of their social standing and in terms of the contribution that they made to the culture and to the family. Uh, the Jews of that day in particular absolutely did see children as a blessing and not as a burden. Right? They saw children as a rich treasure from God, not as a liability, but more so because of what they would eventually, right? Because of what, when they were grown, what they would later contribute to the family dynamic. It says in Psalm 127, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So children were a reward for the parents in their old age as the children would then start to care for them and pro prolong that heritage. But for the most part, until that point, they were sort of overlooked, right? Because their value was inherently tied to what they would contribute in the future. But for now, when they were little, the attitude was sort of, again, that you know seen and not heard thing. So I do think we need to cut the disciples a bit of slack. Purely, they're just products of their culture products of their upbringing. It was probably more just innocent on their part. They're looking at these kids and, you know, again, in this moment, they're just saying, you know, children aren't very important, relatively speaking, and Jesus is at this, some kind of a pivotal point in his ministry. They're just trying to protect his time. They're trying to protect his strength emotionally, physically, so they keep this important man, Jesus, kind of protected from these little people. They just couldn't conceive of how he would want them around him. And yet, of course, as we've seen over and over again, right, these poor guys, just try as they might, they just couldn't have been more wrong here because Jesus didn't see things the way that they saw things, right? So they rebuke the parents for bringing the kids. It says in verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. Whoops. Right? This move of the disciples here is about to land them into some very serious trouble with the Lord. Because let's just say, the, the literal language tells us that Jesus was more than just a little bit bothered by what they had done. Right? Our translation says he was greatly displeased, but literally what the language conveys is that he was incensed about it, that he was irate because of it, that he was offended by what they had done. The Greek word is indignation, right? It's where we get indignation, where some sort of an injustice had been done in this situation. And this is strong language to tell us Jesus felt this indignation towards his own disciples. And this is the only time that that word is ever used of Jesus at all. Which is significant because we know that the disciples had already made plenty of mistakes. We've seen him rebuke them. We've seen him correct them. No doubt we've seen him be frustrated by them because they were so slow to pick up things, right? But the only place where the Bible tells us that he has this indignation towards them is here when they attempt to forbid these children from being brought to him. And I think it's important because we need to look at this passage now and, and make note that this is something that we do not want to be guilty of in our own relationship with Jesus because what's about to follow is a very stinging rebuke from him. So look at it says in verse 14, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. So Jesus is very quick and very clear to rebuke the disciples for rebuking the parents who brought the children. Right? This really hit a nerve with him. 
Because what Jesus explains here is that it is exactly these little ones, right? These lesser ones, these least ones. They are the ones who are the dearest to his heart. They're the ones who have the greatest place in his kingdom, that the kingdom literally belongs to them. And in this single statement of Jesus, right, this one verse, I just think that there is wrapped up in here, there's so much deep and really precious gospel truth. So much rich, rich application for our lives. First and foremost, just as parents, right, and as adults, uh, this one's just sitting right here on the surface for us. It's that truth that as we seek a blessing from Jesus, that we need to bring our children to Jesus, right? We need to bring kids to Jesus, right? We need to bring our children to Jesus. And I know that that is not an earth-shattering truth. You're like, really? I got up here and drove down here for that, right? I know this is a simple truth, but it is also a very, very important truth, and it's a powerful truth, right? Just as these children are bringing their, these parents, pardon me, are bringing their children to Jesus, that he would lay his hands on them and to say, uh, pray a prayer of blessing upon them that they would grow up to be wise and to be holy men and women. And understand this, I think this is important. These parents brought their children to Jesus at a time in his life and at a time in his ministry when it actually would have been dangerous for them to do so. Right At this time, the Jewish religious leaders we know are seeking to destroy Jesus. They are actively plotting to put him to death. And so these parents are taking a considerable risk in publicly identifying themselves with Jesus in this way at this time, right? Publicly bringing their children to him for his blessing as opposed to the blessing of the established religious leaders. And I bring it up because I know that there are some of you, even this morning in this room, who are feeling these same kinds of, of concerns, these same kinds of oppositions in your story. And maybe it is from the leaders of a, of a religious group you were formerly a part of, or maybe it's something closer to home. Maybe it's from your parents, or maybe it's from your grandparents or other family members. It could be an ex-husband, or it could be an ex-wife, someone who is up in arms because you are bringing your children to Jesus. They are up in arms because you're bringing your children to Sunday school and you're reading the Bible to them and you are instilling Christian values in them and you're teaching them to, to memorize the scriptures. And as all of these things then start to work in the life of a child, they start to speak more openly and more familiarly, familiar, 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 wait, let's try it together, familiarly, right, they start to talk more about the Lord, and it really starts to alarm those people that don't know the Lord, right? But don't worry about that, right? You just, above everything else, you just keep bringing your kids to Jesus. You bring your kids to Jesus at all costs, right? Do what is best for the kids and bring them to him. And you bring them to him for the same reasons that these parents Right, at their own peril, the same reasons they brought their children to Jesus. Because even at this point, they recognized, at least to some level, that Jesus alone had these unique blessings that he alone is able to bestow upon our children. Jesus has these blessings that he can bless our kids with, that even the very best of us as parents in this room, they're blessings that we can't bestow on our children simply because they're not ours to give. Not the least of which is their salvation. And then even beyond that, you think about the, the perfect wisdom and the direction for their life. You think about the constant companionship throughout all of their life. You think about the infinite love and the infinite grace and the infinite power and the meaning and the purpose to their life that only Jesus can impart to them. And every one of us as parents, we all want to leave our kids with something substantial when we're gone. 
But I'm here to tell you, if all that we leave them is something that a lawyer can divide up, then we've missed it. Right? We need to leave them with those things that only Jesus can give them. So what we need to seek is the real kingdom blessings that can only come from Jesus. And this is so often why you see many parents or, or people who become followers of Jesus only after they have their children. Because what happens is all of a sudden they've got this little incredible miracle in their arms. And they've got this child in their life and suddenly there's this great recognition that whatever it is that has just happened here, there's a, a sense that I now have this very formidable responsibility of fashioning an eternal human being. Right, And in the heart of it, not only for their adult life in this world, but also to try to prepare them for whatever it is that comes after this world. And it's at that point that people so often realize they need God's help to do this. Right? They don't want this child simply to be a byproduct of their own wisdom or to be the, the result of their own personal experiment right, that their life is. And so they come first to Jesus and they do it first for the sake of the children. And so they find a church and they start bringing those kids and checking them into Sunday school. And then they go and they sit and they listen to that guy talk for an hour in the big church. But very often the Lord gets a hold of their hearts and it's the parents who end up becoming Christians themselves. And they do it all because they wanted to get it right for their kids. There's nothing more important. I'll say this. If you are only going to get one thing right in your role as a parent, get this one right. Bring your children to Jesus. So again, that's just the first super obvious thing that we see here. But it's so important. And I think the other thing that Jesus says in this verse regarding this responsibility that we have to our kids, it's equally as important, not simply that we just need to bring them to him, but also that we don't forbid them, right? We don't hinder them from coming to him, right? So don't keep kids from Jesus. Now, I can see you guys just checked out because... Most of us hear this, and in a sense, we think, well, that doesn't even come close to me. I would never, you know, deliberately stand in the way of a child coming to Jesus like these disciples did, right? I'm not as dumb as those guys are. But as this relates to our children, let's think about it. We need to look not just at our good intentions, but we really need to kind of judge ourselves by our actions, right? I'm thinking about the Christian parent who fails to bring their children to church for weeks at a time because their own priorities are upside down. Because the weekends have become all about fun or all about pleasure or all about sports or all about other activities. The weekends have become all about running here and doing that. The weekends are no longer about systematically laying in that spiritual foundation in their child's life. And I certainly am not one to be too legalistic about this, but the truth is that when we do this, what we model for our children is that everything else in life is what? It's more important than God is. And we're showing our kids that God will just simply accept whatever's left over, right? We're telling them that all he really deserves is the leftovers. He doesn't deserve the best part, the first part of the week. And then what happens is it's these very same parents who are just absolutely shocked when suddenly somehow their children suddenly grow up and they have absolutely no reverence for God. They have no respect for God, but all they're doing is following after what they've seen in their parents' lives. And, and the important part is, for those of us who are parents, is we need to take every bit of this time in their lives to really build in that godly foundation for their lives, just so they're able to stand up against a culture, stand up against all these attacks that are going to come against their faith, which we see increasingly every day all around us in our society. Our society that is just, it seems to be growing leaps and bounds every day. Our society is just utterly confused about how to actually care for and to nurture children. 
And we just see all of these harmful philosophies and these harmful practices that are starting to just become part of mainstream belief about identity and about sexuality and about diversity and about inclusion. All of these different philosophies that are being demonically exploited to keep our children from the Lord. Now, before we point too many fingers, though, at the world around us, right? I don't think we should leave this idea of not hindering our kids in coming to Jesus. We need to consider another important point that might just hit a little closer to home, right? Because we can't just think about society as being the only thing that hinders the youth. Because in this story, who was it? It was actually the disciples of Jesus who were the ones that got in the way. And all of us as modern day disciples in the church, we need to make sure that we are not putting up roadblocks as the church that stumble the next generation from coming to Jesus. Right? Children are helped, right? The next generation is helped when the church is a model of what genuine Christianity looks like. And when the church, as a, all of us as a church, are just spiritually alive, and when the children can see that our fellowship with one another is just super saturated with the gospel and with grace and with the word and with prayer. And it's in that kind of an environment that our children are evangelized and discipled and strengthened and empowered by what they see and how we live as a church and what they experience in the church. But on the other hand, it's legalism within the church that so often just destroys that evangelism, right? Hypocrisy dilutes the, the powerful message of the word of God and its shallow instruction of the word of God that really makes that ge next generation vulnerable to lies, right? So the, the exhortation is don't keep kids from Jesus in any way, right? And again, this isn't just for us as parents, so if you had checked out for a while, I want you to check back in because in a very real sense, every mature Christian should see themselves in a parental way to the next generations in the family of God. Right? You may be unmarried or you may be married, you may be with children, you may be without children, but every mature believer can be a parent to those kids in God's family. Every consecrated Christian is an example for other people to follow, especially those next generations as they're following so closely in our footsteps. They need solid adult models of biblical loving believers. You think about it and we are building into these kids our vision of what the good life looks like. Right? And corporately gathering together when we worship is one way that we build that vision in. Right? As we're worshiping, right, we see, they see what Christianity really actually should look like. They see this, this body of godly people all around them that are just continuing to honor God with their time and with their worship week after week, honoring him with their heart and their mind and their strength and just living out these full lives of devotion to him and, and just raising their arms in praise and worship of him. And it's just an inspiration. It's actually more than an inspiration. Again, it's a vision of where people need to go as they grow up in him. And it, it's one of the reasons why we have Family Worship Sunday, right? It's why we include the kids with us in our worship each and every Sunday, even when they get a little bit squirrely, right? Because I believe that by involving them in the service, having precious Kiara read the scriptures to us this morning, I believe God is working in their lives even right now and he's building that vision into them of what the good life looks like, of what kingdom life with Jesus really looks like and he's building it as they see us all worshiping together. 
So it's so important. Again, we, we seek these real kingdom blessings from Jesus. It's important we bring our kids to Jesus at all costs, that we don't keep them from Jesus in any way, right? So these are these two important things that we see. But also, I think that in what we see that Jesus says here in this very same verse as he's rebuking his disciples, this is where I think we get some of this critical insight into not just how we should raise our children or even how important each child is to the heart of Jesus, but I think that Jesus here gives us some critical insight into just the very character of his kingdom based on the character of those who by and large will comprise the kingdom. Look again with me. Look at the end of verse 14. Jesus says that it's these little children Again, these who were considered less in the society, these who were actually considered to be the least in that culture, Jesus says it's precisely these little people that he says that of such is the kingdom of God. Some of your translations may read that he says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. And in this truth, there's such great application, such important application, I think, for each and every one of us. So again, underline it or highlight it or do whatever it is that you do to it because Jesus is teaching, he's actually reteaching, isn't he, that foundational truth to these disciples and to us just like he already taught it to us in the last chapter because it is that important. Remember when they were all alone, it was just the disciples and Jesus. Back in chapter 9, they were up in Peter's house in Capernaum. They were away from the crowds. He's just pouring in kingdom truth to them. And you remember, didn't he? He set that little child in their midst during his instruction about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And remember he said this, that he said, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child, set him in the midst of them, and when he'd taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. So time after time, picture after picture, Jesus is continuing to show them that the way of God's kingdom itself is so very different than what they could have possibly imagined. That the character of the kingdom of God would be unlike, it would be completely unlike all other kingdoms. Right, Because we said in all other kingdoms, you measure greatness and power by ruling over other people. But in God's kingdom, greatness would be marked by what? By serving other people. Remember we said that the kingdom greatest serve others. And in particular, they serve these little ones. And then Jesus, I hope, is this all coming back now? Jesus went on even to say this. He said that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So is this all ringing a bell? Right, that whole millstone thing? I mean, that was kind of a heavy subject, wasn't it? You guys are with me now, right? All right, now we're warmed up. But remember, for those who didn't get it, millstone, heavy, now you're with me, good. Remember we said this, that the context of what Jesus said there, it extended far beyond just children. Remember the little ones that he was referring to, those who he said were so near and dear to his heart, according to the language that was used by the Spirit here as Mark penned his account, it wasn't a word that was just used for those who were little or small, literally, as in their height or their size but more so literal or, or little or small figuratively as in their importance or their dignity, right? Literally, those who have been deemed insignificant or of no value. And Jesus was teaching them there, he was teaching us there, that we couldn't consider anybody as insignificant to be served. We couldn't consider anybody as unworthy of salvation because of the way that we evaluated them. 
So it's all those despised kinds of people, the poor people, the ordinary people, the people who have no influence or wealth or power, the people who need everything done for them, the people who are dependent on us. Right? To receive them and to serve them, is to minister to them in the name of Jesus, he said, wasn't just to receive him, but actually the Father in heaven who sent him. Now this was all his last teaching on this same subject. And now here, in this next teaching on the same subject, what Jesus has just done is he just punctuates this picture, right? He develops this picture for the guys to show them that it is these very people. It's the very people like these children, the little ones, right? Undervalued by the culture, he says, they are the ones who are supremely valued in the kingdom. They are the very people who will make up the kingdom, right? That the kingdom is both of them and it's for them. And you're saying, okay, okay, right? We get it. But I don't actually think that we do get it. Because think about what this statement, this would have been yet another one of those absolute mind blowers for these guys. Because if we back up the truck just for a minute, let's remember what the disciples believed about Jesus, about the kingdom, and about these children. They believed he was Messiah. And what that meant to them was that he had come to pick up where David, King David, had left off. And to simply reestablish that powerful throne and to restart that glorious kingdom and to rule and to reign and to really make Israel kind of a super nation once again like they were back in the kingdom era. And here Jesus throws them this curveball and he says that it's people just like these little insignificant children that actually belong in the kingdom and that would actually make up the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound too much like a super nation or kingdom era kind of kingdom to me, right? But those who were considered less, those who were considered dependent, Jesus considered them to be kingdom material. And though the disciples may have struggled with this concept, we now know, of course, now we have the rest of the revelation of the scriptures we now know that this is actually the way God works. This is just God's regular economy, right? It's, it's like Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he said, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, we've all seen these verses before. And I will say again what I've said before. I hope you can see yourself in those verses because I absolutely know I see myself. And when we see ourselves, the view's not very pretty, is it? Not wise, not mighty, not noble, but in fact, what? Foolish, weak, base, despised, right? We are, congratulations, folks, we are the things that are not, right? Happy Sunday, right? And this might not sound like very good news, until we remember and until we realize that this is the good news. That is the gospel itself. This is what actually makes all of us kingdom material and qualifies each of us to be kingdom kids. Now, you think you're not good enough. Well, you're not. You think you're not wise enough. Guess what? You're not. You think you're not mighty enough. You're not. But that's precisely the point because Jesus is. And he's building this kingdom not based on our greatness, but based on his greatness. He's building a kingdom that's great because he is great and greater, in fact, than any other kingdom. And, and I believe that part of the importance of this passage is for the disciples and for us, once again, to really relearn what the kingdom really is. 
right? To relearn the character of the kingdom. And just quickly, famous last words, quickly, you Bible students, you all are familiar with the, in the book of Daniel chapter two, remember that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and God used Daniel to give the interpretation to the king. And in the dream, remember, was that statue of a man. And each part of that man made up a, was made up of a different material and each material signified a different empire or a different kingdom, right? A coming kingdom which would rule over the earth. And we remember that the head was made of gold, and that was Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom of Babylon. The chest of silver was the Medo-Persian Empire, which would come and conquer Babylon. The legs of bronze was the Greek Empire, which would overtake the Medo-Persians. And then the feet of iron and clay was the Roman Empire, right? That final world empire. And what we remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that suddenly he, he sees this image and then he sees this stone cut without hands that comes down, strikes the image and breaks it, crushes it into pieces. And this is what Daniel explained. It says, in the days of these things, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall be left to other people, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. He says, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. And you say, well, what's the point? Why is this important? And I say that this vision that was given here to this pagan king is so important as we just consider what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us here about this coming kingdom as we really try to get to the heart of the character of the kingdom because we are always going to be tempted to think of this kingdom that's coming as it relates somehow to the kingdoms of these previous superpowers, right? We are all inclined to think that it's gonna be something along the lines of this impressive kingdom of Babylon or the conquering Medes or the cultured Greeks or the powerful and dominating Romans. But the truth is that, the, that it will be unlike any of these things. It will be cut out of the mountain without hands because it's going to be fashioned by God himself and not by men. It's going to be different and unique and heavenly and it is going to crush everything that we've known of all these earthly kingdoms. And guess what? It is already happening. Now one day... We know that Jesus' kingdom will appear in full glory and it will be far greater than any empire in human history. But right now, Jesus' kingdom has already actually come and it's available to each one of us. But it has come in this beautiful humility that's exemplified here in this little child. Right? It's already here. It's among us and it's around us and it's in us and it works through us. Remember we've said that the kingdom of Jesus is what? It's already but it's not yet. So it's already in the sense that it's internal and it's this beautiful thing. It's alive within each one of us and it operates wherever it is that we will give it authority, right? And as we live it out around us, but it's not yet here in its fullness, in, in its majesty, the way it will be in a, in a dominant physical presence upon the earth. And when will that come? Well, it'll come during the millennial reign when King Jesus rules and reigns over this planet in righteousness and in peace. But at this point, God is looking for those whom all of these world kingdoms, right, who the world system despises, and he's inviting us to come in and to be part of this new kingdom that has this very different kingdom character, right? Those are the people, according to Jesus, who are kingdom material. Because the kingdom isn't achieved by force 
or by radical re reforms, but it is achieved by simply becoming like powerless children. Becoming people who really understand that our only real resource is God and who cling to God, people who are dependent upon God and desperate for his help, right? Just like these children that we see crowding around him, right? Dependent, helpless, unless God helps us, right? Such an important, such a foundational truth about the kingdom that really should set a trajectory for the way that we live in the kingdom. So then Jesus, as if this weren't enough, right? Now Jesus makes this final startling statement. Look at verse 15. He says, assuredly, I say to you. Now here's a Bible pro tip, guys. When Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, or when he says, verily, I say unto you, or when he says, truly, I tell you, or when he says, I tell you the truth, or whatever he says in whatever translation you're reading, that is a phrase that is only ever used by Jesus. And when you see it, what should you do? You better sit up and you better take notice. Pay attention to what comes next because you can bet that it is going to be important. He says, assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Whoa, right? Things just suddenly got real. So first Jesus says the kingdom isn't what you think it is. Then he says the people in it aren't who you think that they are going to be. Now he says, you don't get into it the way that you think that you do. He says, you only get into it like they do. You only get into it like the little ones do. Now, as adults, we spend most of our time thinking that children have everything to learn from us, right? And that there's nothing that we can learn for them. And so we focus all of our attention, you know, toward what we think is our responsibility to move them from this inferior state of being children now to somehow the more superior state of being adults. But what Jesus just told us in this passion, the passage is that these children have much to teach us as adults and they have much to teach us in nothing less than what is the most important area of life. And that is how to enter into the kingdom of God how to be saved. Because yes, Jesus is talking here about our salvation. He's talking here about how one gets into God's family now and ultimately into heaven later. And he says that in order to be saved, we have to receive the kingdom of God as a little child. Now, you have probably heard a sermon, you've probably read a book, you've probably, you maybe even have listened to a whole podcast where they just talk about what Jesus meant when he said these thought-provoking words. And very often, you know, pastors or commentators or students or scholars, they kind of like to run wild with this whole child analogy that Jesus used. And I get it, right? It's a great picture, and it is tempting to kind of talk up. You could make a whole series of sermons out of things like talking about the innocence of a child or the spontaneity of a child or their eagerness or their joy, right? It's, it's fun to talk about how simple and, and how unpredictable kids can be because indeed children are amazing, right? And they are gifts from God and yet to focus on any of these things, I'm afraid, is to really miss out on the point of the passage, right? Because Jesus isn't praising some sort of a list of values that he saw in children that they have, because the fact is not all children have these values. Here's what I, I heard this once said, it stuck with me. Somebody said that there are two types of people in the world. Those who think that mankind is essentially good at the core and those who have children, <laughs> right? So we know that Jesus isn't just praising the innate goodness and righteousness of children. He's talking specifically about how to get into the kingdom and he's not saying that you'll get into the kingdom if you're sweet enough or if you're joyful enough or even if you're innocent enough. He's not preaching some kind of a works based 
righteousness or a virtue-based righteousness. He's not saying that in any way, but instead he's just making a comparison. He says that, yes, some people are going to receive the kingdom, and they are going to receive it because they receive things the way that children receive things. And so again, the key word I think that Jesus is commending here in children is right there in the verse. What is it? It's the word receive. And so the emphasis here is on the fact that children will receive and they don't feel like they have to earn everything they get. Right? Children are just great receivers. Right? When a child is offered a gift, they just receive it and they receive it very, very readily. Right? And they will never turn down a good gift. It never even enters into their mind to turn down a gift that is offered to them. Right? And when a gift is being offered, it never enters into their mind that now this is something that they have to earn in some way. Children just receive gifts that are given to them. It's only as we get a little bit older, we start to become a little more jaded in life, and we just start to assume that there could be a string Right, attached to things. Maybe even some sort of a mixed motive that's behind this gift. And so we're a little less prone to simply receive something that's offered to us because we've lost that childlikeness in this regard, and it's not good. You think about it, uh, children are inherently in a place where all that they can do is to receive. They're completely dependent upon others. They receive everything, right? It takes years for a child to even get to the point where they can begin to earn anything. Childhood itself is this whole season of just receiving things. You receive your home, your clothing, your food, you receive love, you receive education, you receive help. And in fact, the entire adult world only exists to give you things, right? Just to keep you alive. You have no money to offer. Your relationships aren't reciprocal. You just assume, right? Unknowingly, you just assume that you're going to be cared for and that you're going to be taken care of and that you're going to be loved and you have nothing you can offer in return for all of it. All you can do is say thank you through your dependence. It is a perfect picture of what? Of every one of us in the kingdom of God. So we simply receive what is given. And the people who are in the kingdom are like children because we know that the kingdom has to be received. And unlike adults, children don't usually refuse gifts because, they're, because of their self-sufficient pride. Right. So the point of the passage is that we need to receive the kingdom of God as a little child because surely we will by no means enter into it by anything that we could do or by anything that we could possibly earn. And then, of course, we look later in the New Testament and we see this whole foundational truth just echoed and, and expounded and explained to us in the epistles. In the book of Romans, Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a what? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then to the Ephesians, he says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So we cannot achieve the kingdom, we can only receive the kingdom. So the true character of the kingdom is that we need to receive and not achieve the kingdom. It isn't given to us on merit. We can't earn our good standing. It is all by God's grace. We're absolutely dependent upon him. Right? We just receive and we enjoy the kingdom humbly knowing that we had nothing to do with it. It is utterly because of and it is utterly by God's grace. And so that's the childlikeness that is required for our entrance into the kingdom. We simply cannot achieve it. We have to receive it like these little ones do. 
right? Ironic, isn't it? We tell children to behave like adults, but Jesus here tells adults to behave like children. Concerning our very salvation in this respect, kids really do have more to teach us than we have to teach them. And this is what it is. Let me make this as personally clear as I can possibly make it. When God offers you a gift, you receive it. When God offers you the gift of salvation, be sure to receive it. Because Jesus wants to bless us with that. Just in the very same way that he does finally in our last verse, he blesses these children who were brought to him. It says in verse 16 that he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. So from the very first verse in our text today, that was like two and a half hours ago, I know. But from the very first verse, as we picture these little children there around Jesus, did any one of us expect that Jesus would do anything different than to just bless their socks off? Right? It says to take them, in fact, up in his arms and to just pour out his blessing upon them. And he longs to do that very same thing with each and every one of us who's here this morning. He says in John chapter 6, he said that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the ones who come to me I will by no means cast out. Again, these little children are a perfect picture of each and every one of us. They brought absolutely nothing to Jesus, but they received absolutely everything from Jesus. And can I just say as we close this morning, and as we invite the worship kids to come back up and as we really just start to prepare our hearts to celebrate communion today, can I just say that this entire dynamic of simply receiving, it doesn't just apply as it relates to how we each enter the kingdom, but it continues on each and every day as we now live in the kingdom. Right? We continue to receive, not to achieve. Jesus continues to want to shower us with his blessings and to take us up in his arms. And he continues to want to lay his hands on us and to impart his blessings and to impart his very life into us. And so again, I just want to encourage you as we close today, if you're not part of his kingdom, if you're not yet a true kingdom kid, no matter how old you are, right? You simply need to receive the gift that is even now being offered to you. You simply need to receive the gift of that forgiveness of your sins, that gift of being reconciled back into that right relationship with God. Receive that gift that Jesus made possible for you because he paid for your sin through his death on the cross. Right? He gave you his perfect righteousness, right? his perfect rightness. He gave that to you to cover over and to wipe out all of your wrongness. And that's a gift. It's a gift you can't achieve. You simply need to receive it. And if you're here this morning, like I think probably most of us, and you already have received it, let me encourage you that we need to keep on receiving it. We need to walk in that. We need to stop trying to achieve it. We need to keep on receiving each and every day, just receiving afresh each day that same grace and that same mercy and that same forgiveness and that same blessing that ushered us into the kingdom. That's the very same way that God wants us to walk now in the kingdom. Right? And that is exactly what it is that we celebrate each Sunday on the first Sunday when we take communion together. We celebrate that new life that's been provided to us that we had no prayer of providing for ourselves no matter how we tried. Now we're going to go now to, to a time where we celebrate communion. And I'll say what I say each and every time we do it. At Calvary Mountain View here, we have what's called open communion, which simply means you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion, which is good because we don't have membership here at our church. If you show up and you believe in Jesus, you're part of the family of God, and we consider you part of our church family. 
So if you're here today and you're a believer, communion is open to you, and I would encourage you to take it and to, and to celebrate these things. Again, as we say each month, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, then communion's really not for you yet. Because communion's a time when we as followers of Jesus look back on what it is that he did for us and we look ahead to his promise to return to us. Right? But if that's not you yet, but you want to be that person, you want to start this relationship with Jesus, we can take care of that this morning. Pastor Jeff is going to be standing over here, and I think his wife Anne is hiding over there. And they would love to talk to you. They would love to answer questions that you have. And most of all, they would love to pray with you to receive Jesus, to trust in him, and to start this new relationship uh, of grace with him. Amen? So the kids are going to start to, uh, to minister. And as they do, you can just come up and collect the elements yourself. You can take them back to your seat and just spend some time just reflecting on them. Spend some time in communion with the Lord. Um, just ask him to search your heart for some anything he wants to speak to you. Uh, and then when you're ready, you can take the elements on your own. And when we're all done, uh, as we worship, I'll just come back up and we'll dismiss and we'll go have some, uh, some food together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for your great grace, Lord. We thank you for your great love for us, Lord, your, your mercy upon us. And we thank you for this time of communion where we're, we're able to just celebrate and to look back on all that it is that you've done, Lord, and to look forward with anticipation for that time where you, as you've promised, Lord, well, you'll, you'll come for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make this time fresh and new in our hearts this morning. Uh, as we do it, Lord, and uh, we thank you so much, Lord, for your presence in our lives. Ask you to bless this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's take communion together.